Welcome to the Efficient Spend Podcast, where we help marketers turn media spend into revenue. My guest today is John Lorenzini. John, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the uh, the invite and connecting on LinkedIn. Yeah, we're going to have a really fun conversation today. I know that you have a ton of experience with incrementality and lift testing. I think it would be helpful for the audience just to give a, be- a brief background into your experience with optimizing media spend. Sure. Um, kind of uh, all over the place. I was at media agencies, started out in print doing Bristol Myers Squibb ads, then hopped over to Mediacom where I worked on Dell, optimizing their search accounts, then became a digital analyst, then was at um, Zenith for General Mills, uh, doing all digital analytics, and then moved over to uh, big tech. I was at Google for four and a half years, mostly focused on food, beverage, and restaurants, and then eventually working on all reach-based products, so like your ex- your GRPs, reach frequency, those kind of optimizations uh, within Google, then Facebook, global CPG, and then uh, Snapchat, retail restaurants, travel, and energy. So kind of all over the map of big tech, and now I'm here at Lift Lab, VP of Marketing Science, uh, helping uh, you know clients optimize their media spend. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into Lift Lab. Um, I'm really excited though. You might be one of the few, and I'm not sure that has marketing science background at some of the big tech companies, Facebook, Google, and Snap, right? That's a pretty interesting combination. I don't know if folks like hop around at those companies or, or not, but what's your you know experience between all of them as you think about the kind of lift testing incrementality landscape how do you think these folks are doing the you know the big ad channels yeah i mean i i think they what was really interesting through the career project uh, progression was i always went smaller uh i think some people work the other way around they start start at startups and then they go to big tech but i started at google and then facebook snap and you know what i realized there is you have to wear a lot more hats as you go smaller. So you have to learn how to build the engine as opposed to just drive the car. So I think that in terms of the the growth I experienced with a, you know, a machine that hasn't been built yet, I really understood the inner workings as opposed to, you know, pushing a well-optimized report, you know, pushing a button, getting that report and then sharing it out with the market. So I think that the smaller companies, and this is kind of why I jumped to startups, was I wanted to learn more. And I think that you learn more at smaller, but it has to be scrappier and it has to be a little bit more, uh, uh, oh, you want to solve this problem? Okay, go for it. I I have no resources for you. (laughs) So I think that difference is you could do more at the big companies, but there's a lot more you know, bureaucracy, there's a lot more silos that happen and, and hoops you got to jump to just to get access to that data. Sure. Um, being inside of those companies and, uh, do you, do you feel like some are doing it better than others? Like in, in terms of, I guess the, the big ad, ad networks, who do you think has the, their, their minds wrapped around incrementality and lift testing, you know, who's the top tier? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to a little bit of the ideology that aligns with its product's goals or what it's good at, right? So you saw early internet last click attribution, and you know I don't want to go into a whole diatribe against last click, but it features 
it's it, it works well for lower funnel products. For upper funnel products, it's a little bit about more view through attribution and all these other pieces. And, you know, in jumping through these companies, you kind of had to drink and undrink the Kool-Aid. And I think through that, I started realizing that, you know, incrementality based measurement is, you know, a reflection of their ideological stance on where like their products do well, but also what do they think it makes the most sense for their advertisers using their products, I, I, I guess. So it's kind of like, I would say they all do it pretty well. I would say Google with ghost ads is really great at showcasing the value of the ad unit and creative. While, you know, if you're a little bit before the pre-algo ranking, when you're opportunity logging, it shows the value of the algorithm as well as the ad unit and as well as the creative. So I don't know if the, it's an absolute, like one is better than the other. It's more, they're telling you different things. And I think the concerning piece with that is if one's doing frequentist and one's doing Bayesian, one's opportunity logging early, one's opportunity logging later, you know, you're getting very different answers to, or you're getting the same answer to very different questions that you're asking. And I think the understanding under the hood of all these questions are really saying like, this is what this lift is actually representing, as opposed to just, here's your lift value, run with this. Right, which uh, which leads us to to Lift Lab, and um, you know what is Lift Lab at a at a high level, and what are you responsible for there? Yep. So uh, Lift Lab is a a company that helps marketers become smarter by understanding the difference between their growth and their profitability. We have two major stacks. One is an experimentation stack, which uses geo experiments. And then the other is an agile mixed model, which ingests their data, gives the holistic full picture. But as we know, anything that's correlative is not causal. And because of that, you could sometimes get some wacky results. And I think where Lift Lab is different is we don't try to average or just make the results look believable to the advertisers. We say, this is what the data is telling us. We both know it's wrong. Let's run a test and actually refine our assumptions with causal data to inform the model further so that we can say, hey, you don't have to trust this whole model yet. Let's pick out these pieces, run the tests, put it in there. And then we could both feel like we're not just averaging or putting the art in our hands, but rather in the client's hands. Sure. Um, I, I, I like that you differentiate between uh, calling it really an agile mixed model. Um, just to give a, a sense of you know the the scale that the lab is at, um, do you have any kind of indication of how much you know either annual or monthly spend is being uh, optimized or analyzed on the platform, and then also what verticals you kind of tend to skew into? Yeah, I, I mean, I could give you a list of some of the clients, and I think you can infer from that. I, I you know, I, I don't know the exact number, so I don't want to be inaccurate. Uh, sure. But you know, with TurboTax, Intuit, Skims, Pandora Jewelry, Sephora, uh, Tory Burch, um, Express, uh, Leslie's Pools. So we're kind of we're kind of all over the map, and we have uh, a lot of different clients. And those are just top of top of my head. We have around, you know quite a few more than that. Uh, so you you put that all together. I mean, just the first client I mentioned is is a huge amount of spend. So it's, it's quite large. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and I, I'm sure also that, so some larger clients you mentioned, um, 
is there solutions for maybe smaller startups or folks that are going, you know, from maybe they have, they're spending a hundred K a month on a, on a few channels. Does it make sense for somebody like that? Or is it really more the enterprise clients? I would say it's mid between, uh, you know, we definitely want to make sure that the optimization, you know, decisions that we're helping them make pay for the cost of lift lab. So as you get larger scales and, and larger clients, you know, a 5% improvement pays your lift lab bill three times over with your first test. So to us, it's a very easy, you know, value prop for us, which is saying, you know, if you're probably spending probably 5 million plus annually, which is, which is mid tier, you know, we could do kind of a, a check to see is, is this a right fit or not? Because sometimes clients are just too small or sometimes clients are, are, you know, working through their growth strategy and they're not, you know, completely optimized. So, well, not completely optimized, but they're working towards optimization where they're making such big changes in their account. We measure the best play that's on the field. So if you switch everything up, then it's going to ha not have the historical data or information to say, how do you improve off of a very shaky base? So there's there's a couple of clients that a little too soon, a little too small, and then eventually they come back around and then they become our clients. So it's it's definitely a timing thing on on, on the growth. But, you know, five million plus uh, spend in, in revenue is usually a good rule of thumb to start. Okay. I, yeah, that, that's that's very helpful. Um and and I wonder too. Of, of course, you you kind of run the the gamut. Um, one of the things as you scale a media mix and and you get more complex, you're running multiple channels, multiple uh, attribution methodologies. Um, you kind of come across like how are we how are we measuring and setting the the right acquisition goals for for our media mix. A lot of folks might say, okay, we're going to try to optimize towards a, a blended CAC goal, and, and that's kind of what we're doing. Then we go into our weekly meetings. Oh, CAC is up. We have to reduce. Um, I know we were chatting before uh, talking about like, hey, is CAC to LTV the, the, the best framework to, to look at? Um, you know, when you look at clients and you look at folks using Lift Labs and think about goal setting, do you have any kind of framework or, or principles that, that, that you think through that make more sense? Yeah. And, and I think it's different for every client. I think the CAC to lifetime value is really great for contracts like uh, credit cards, banks, you know, phone carriers, life insurance, all those pieces. You don't have to put more ads in front of them to purchase again. You know, maybe it'll reduce churn. Maybe it'll, you know, um, allow them to, to I, I don't know, upgrade, cross sell, upsell whatnot. But for the most part, it's that first purchase that they're looking at. So the CAC to lifetime ratio, I think, is really good for subscription-based businesses that don't change. However, there's been a lot of startups that I've seen applying CAC to lifetime because investors like to see it, despite it's not the reality of how marketing works. You know, if someone has a company that's a product, like you can use... Um, uh, Fader's buy till you die model to say, is this person still alive? What's their average order value? How many orders do they get before they fall out of the funnel? But that still requires advertising. You know, you're remarketing funnels and all these other pieces. You're only counting the costs of the initial acquisition, but it still requires investment to keep them live. And I think it undervalues, you know, prospecting on, well, it's not, it's prospecting on customers that have already converted. Right, which is already the more likely person to convert because they've already been through the process, they have experience with your product, and you're undervaluing the amount of advertising that you're putting to get your easiest people in the door again. 
So for me, the CAC to lifetime ratio is a good investor metric, good for subscriptions to say the overall health of the business, but it's not a very good marketing metric because of all the reasons why you undervalue that. Right. And um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, from my understanding, you're more in kind of like the the marginal IROAS, IROI kind of camp. Can you explain a little bit uh, about that? Sure. So uh, with IROAS, that's incremental revenue on ad spend. And that's what more happens when you spend in, on advertising. So the counterfactual is I spend nothing. Here's my revenue. I spend something. Here's the extra. So that's the incremental. Now, I saw with experiments on publisher side, I see it, you know, pretty much across the board that the first couple dollars you spend is really efficient. It does really well on a publisher. But those last couple dollars, because they they um, they have a propensity score, a likelihood that you're going to convert or purchase a good. Those in the beginning are really, really likely. And then as you continue to scale and increase the size of your campaign, you get weaker and weaker propensity scores. So what happens is you end up with this diminishing returns curve where your first couple dollars are super efficient and your last are not. So IROAS, uh, to me, is an average metric. It is what did your average dollar do uh, in terms of driving the average amount of re incremental revenue. So this is why I prefer uh, marginal IROAS as opposed to IROAS or, or any sort of just ROAS. And a really good example that I use to explain advertisers is if I'm a publisher and you give me a dollar and I give you $100 back, that's an IROAS of 100 and a marginal IROAS of 100. Now you give me a second dollar and I give you nothing back. Your IROAS is 50, but your marginal is zero. So why should you keep spending bad money until the average goes below your KPI? You, you should stop as soon as it's not working for you. And that's really what we try to do and measure is say, when does your spend become inefficient? Um, let me ask. So it, it makes sense to me with, with folks like e-com where it's like, okay, I spent this thing on Facebook and then, you know, someone had a, a average online uh, value of X and I can calculate the, the um, I ro ROAS, so you can calculate the marginal as well. Um, for folks with different revenue models, right? Um, I know you maybe like a subscription model or B2B where you might not be seeing that revenue for six months, 12 months down the line. How do you think about utilizing a metric like marginal IROAS with some of those brands where it's not as clear when you're getting that revenue? Yeah, no, and that and that's an excellent question that we 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 get asked a lot. A high value, high consideration purchase that happens infrequently. You know, it's it's there's a lot of things that move you towards that decision, but ultimately you shouldn't be giving credit to the spend that just happens at the end there, right? So there's a couple of things that we look at. One is ad stock effects. So what you could do is run an autocorrelation function or a cross correlation function and take a look to see um, the decay. Right. If you do a big spike, how much does the day before investment impact the conversions the next day and the next day and the next day? So it's they do this in television. Procter and Gamble's really good at doing this pulsing, where they pulse on, they let it decay, they pulse, they let it decay, and that's one way. And that's more of the ad effectiveness going down over time. Uh, the other pieces is you know the consideration of of zooming out and saying you know what is your investment over longer periods of times or wider. With our agile mix model, it's daily. So with daily spend, we get daily results and we see a lot of day a week effects and saying, oh, more people happen to be in market, you know, 
you're not necessarily using Canva, another one of our clients, on weekends or purchasing because you don't want to suddenly do a PowerPoint or a, a Canva presentation on a weekend. You know, same thing with with tax season, with you know your pools. It's all very seasonal and very heavied up. Where how early do you have to spend before that considered purchase? So I guess this is kind of a long way winded way of saying it really depends on the business unit and it really depends on kind of what their seasonal trends are, how they're qualified and helping them make those decisions of um, when do you make your investments heavy and when do you make them lighter? When do you make them super targeted and when do you make them super broad? And that's kind of the feedback that we get as we do those quarter over quarter remodels or our weekly rescorings. Yeah. One of the things that, um, you know, I've been thinking about on, on the pay team is, um, we want to optimize towards metrics that we can directly impact. And sometimes the lower funnel metrics are more heavily impacted by things like product lifecycle. Um, and so if we optimize towards those metrics on like a weekly basis, and there's a lot of volatility, it could be that there was, you know, a product bug or something that happened with return customers. And so while the ideal is that we're trying to say, hey, let's get as many customers as possible, it might make sense for the paid team to say, well, we're really trying to optimize towards like net new email submits because we know that we can fa- we can impact that and then let Lifecycle do the, the job. Um, any thoughts on that type of approach? Yeah, no, I, I do like having campaigns that are targeted to a specific business unit or goal or being narrow with your audiences. The thing, though, is the targeting is not always there to the narrowness of your conversions. So you're going to end up with conversions on other other types of customers and other other pieces of your your business units. Um I remember when I was on Dell, uh, Katie on my team, she uh, plugged in all the uh the scanner codes of mouse, like a consumer mouse. And someone came in on the consumer mouse and then bought, I think $300,000 or something server solution for the company. It was an IT person reordering. So it's kind of like, okay, you're marketing to consumers a mouse, but then they end up buying a server solution, which is a completely different business unit of Dell. So this was something where it's like, you can put your advertising out there, but you can't tell them to buy in retail stores or to buy online, you know, if they're a new customer, an existing customer, and maybe you might heavy up with them. And we see sometimes like new customer promotions for certain subscription models might you know, pop more, you might have more of a lift or more of a, a an impact when you do a pricing change for a new customer, like um, Thrive Marketplace, another one of our customers would probably see that kind of new versus existing when they are targeting that new, but there's always halos to everything. So it's why wouldn't you count the halo if it helps your business? Right, right, right. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the attribution landscape today. Um, I know that you are uh, in the top-down Bayesian camp, right? Um, And a framework that you had shared, uh, you shared a deck with me before the the call um, with with Lift Lab, kind of talking about different attribution methodologies being kind of um, tops down, top down versus, versus bottoms up. And I hadn't seen that framework before. And it kind of made sense to me, you know, even thinking about something like last click, it's like, yeah, it's, it's bottoms up that, 
um, if you sum all of the attributed conversions, it is not actually going to add up to how many conversions you got. And there's a lot of double counting there. Um, do you want to kind of talk through that, that at a, at a high level? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so bottom up is generally click-based, user-based, super granular. You take those as your fact, and then you try to project up. And with these projections, you know, when we had a hundred percent match rate or a very high match rate, those projections up were very good. But with iOS 14.5, GDPR, CCPA, IP relay, all these things coming out, the match rates from these publishers are getting smaller and smaller. And because of that, your projections have to be on a larger and larger percentage of your sample. So with that, you're starting with a fact that's a much smaller percentage of your foundation and then trying to extrapolate that up to extrapolate up to what you think it's actually doing for their business. Now, with a shakier foundation and higher levels of assumptions, you know, Android is doing this. We know the ratio of Android to Apple is that. So therefore, we think Apple's doing this or all those kind of fuzzy math logic kind of things where you're no longer trying to understand why something happened and more what happened through your forecasting. So when you start bottom up, you sometimes get really wonky numbers because one assumption between you know your, your truth and what you're saying there's a lot of assumptions in between. Now, a top-down approach is let's start with the revenue and the spend. This is what happened. This is what the shareholders care about. This is what your stock price is. It, well, it's not based off your stock price. There's a lot. But you you understand. So they yeah. take that and now it's decomposing. So it's splitting it up and saying, we have the size of the pie. Now let's figure out each wedge. And because of that, there's less assumptions between what you're projecting down. And if you're doing a multi-layered you know, or a hierarchical model where you say, okay, let's get it right at the channel level. Let's get it right at the tactic level. Let's go down to the campaign level. Your bands for error become a lot smaller, right? Because if something's out of whack, it's only going to go out of whack to the level above it. And that's kind of where it limits the amount of, of error that you could make overall with bad data. Now, clients come to us with a variety of good and bad data. And, you know, if you have flat, even spend, it tells us nothing. We don't know what's your baseline or what that's doing for you. So you have to create some better data because, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that better data is is better than any model. You can throw a model, like you could throw any model at great data and get roughly the same results. And if you have bad data, all the models will be okay and then require like a PhD making a whole bunch of assumptions, but it wouldn't be any better assumptions than our clients who have the market context. So this is kind of where if you're bringing in bad data or if you're having data that doesn't tell us much, it's, it's you know, how do we create better ones? But how do I, I missed a part of how I got here. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of chatter around the negatives of, of last click for certain, uh, analyses. It is the best source that you have. So for example, if you're running like a very clean AB test on creative in Facebook, you're going to use the pixel to determine like which did better. Right. Um, and I guess maybe you might be using click through rate or something else, but there are kind of, uh, places that you're doing that, you're using that. And there's times where maybe media mix modeling is is too high level that that you don't want to use that. Um, I, 
I, I like the the approach and it's very interesting how you talk about this kind of combination of running lift tests to inform your your model and being kind of cyclical in that in that way. Um, can you kind of go into a little bit more detail on tactically what that looks like? So if a client's onboarding to to Lift Lab and they're like, hey, listen, we just want to test a bunch of things, right? Like we want to understand uh where we're wasting spend, where we can optimize. Can you help us create a budget testing framework to do that? Um, how do you kind of approach that? Yep. So uh, I think the first thing is like with last click, I like it for one thing, which is determining how qualified an audience is. That's it. You know, it doesn't tell you how well the ads work. It doesn't tell you anything except for how qualified is this audience. If you're going broad mass reach, probably less qualified, lower click-through rate. If you're doing your branded, you know, exact match keywords on Google search, probably highly, highly qualified. So last click is great for that. Now, if you have equal qualified audiences, which you could do on platform because they do their randomized through ghost ads or through intent to treat, you can use, you know, click-through rates provided that the A and B groups are matched pretty well to make those optimization decisions. Now, with Bayesian models and, and you know, geo t- tests, they're a little bit more of a sledgehammer in a good way, right? Because it's you want to know what impacts your revenue the most. So you want to move this to be able to see what happens. And you want to do so in a fair and comparable way. Um, with these different platforms testing different ways, different, like as I mentioned earlier, it's apples and oranges, the outcomes for a lift test. If I have an incrementality test on Google and an incrementality test on Facebook, the methodologies that get to that lift value are vastly different. So you can't just say, I got higher lift on this than that, therefore I should shift my budget. So the first thing is the consistency between channels at a macro level. And this is where agile mix model, marketing mix models, all these things are kind of those big sledgehammer type measurements to say, if I move this, I don't care about all the details, what happens? Now, if you do care about the details because you're working on a specific publisher, you're a digital marketer where you're focusing solely on social, solely on search, whatnot, then you care all about the details. And that's how do you optimize once you get your budget for your book, how do you make it as efficient as possible? Now, with Lift Lab, we're assuming that your uh, your play on the field is the best one you have, right? So we draw the curve, we figure out the diminishing returns curve, and we say, what is the efficiency of your investment given all your settings? Now, you're going to want to optimize those settings and make them better. And a lot of our clients figure out ways on platform to say, hey, since all the measurement on this one platform is even and the audience could be even, we can test super granularly and use identity level signals because their match rates are the same in the in both groups, the AB groups, the control exposed groups, all that, which is great because we're not comparing it to someone else and the assumptions for both are the same. So for comparative things on platform and below, I do love platform testing because uh, you know identity level stuff will allow you to have larger samples than geos. And because of that, you can have more resolution. So I think really my cutoff is, you know, a tactic or above. And a tactic could be like, you know, Google prospecting or sorry, Facebook prospecting versus Facebook remarketing. You know, those are pools of those are fundamentally different audiences. And because of those, you know, that's the level where market mix model and above sings. Below that, we do have campaign level reporting and with enough historical data, enough variance, et cetera, we do get reads on that. But if you want quick, you know, creative level tests, 
you should do that on platform because running a geo test creative a versus creative b seems to be a little bit of an overkill for kind of what you're trying to solve for and you'd rather have rapid iterations right um at the same time i think like making those big swings are also going to be the things that make the the big difference like the 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 larger of a change that you can make that has a positive result will have a larger positive result for your business. Um, as you think about kind of like an optimal media mix, and the way that I think about this is these individual areas have diminishing returns. Like you said, Facebook retargeting audience has is on a diminishing return curve. Uh, Facebook prospecting, when you have paid search, you have upper funnel media. Um, what do you think a composition of a healthy media mix looks like. And I know that runs the gamut, but you know, just some, I, I, I would love just like your hot take on this, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're basically priming for the typical uh, analyst answer, which is it depends. Uh, I, think, I think that uh, every circumstance is different. Every product is different. Uh, so maybe like subcategorizing things, you know, if you're doing, Pricing and promotional deal. Uh, mm, no, even then, I could. Every time, it's like it's it's really custom to the business, and I'm not going to pretend that I know a business more than my clients do. You know, for me, I don't want to tell a marketer how they should market because they know their audiences, they know what's efficient, they know upper versus lower funnel, and what we do is provide evidence to that. What I've noticed is pretty common is they over invest in lower funnel activities because it's the most trackable, especially with all the tracking concerns now, because it's easy to measure. It's, it's, it's a streetlight problem. Are you familiar with the streetlight uh, problem? There's a drunk guy and he's on his hands and knees looking for his keys underneath the streetlight. And a cop comes up to him and goes, Hey, what are you doing? He's like, I'm looking for my keys. And then the cop goes, well, how do you know it's under the streetlight? He's like, I don't know it's under the streetlight. This is the only place I can see. So the measurement of lower funnel is the spot, is the streetlight. It's the spot that they can see. So therefore, they over-optimize or overlook into those places. that they, they don't overlook. They overlook into that, which you know means that they undervalue what the upper funnel less easy to track things. And this is something that we typically see when clients onboard with us is a shift of credit from the lower funnel to the upper funnel, because they know intuitively as marketers, when I turn off Facebook prospecting, all of a sudden my, my bottom of funnel remarketing drops. And the marketing team knows that well, but then you look at the finance team and they're like, well, this is super efficient and this is super inefficient. So I need to shift more here. And it's a much more complicated and nuanced discussion, which is why a lot of the tools that we're coming out with are about forecasting, being able to say, I'm not going to hit your, 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 your quota or your goals based off of this level of spend or at any level of spend. Your goals are just too crazy, diminishing returns. Like we're never going to go like that. No marketing continues to go like that indefinitely. So a lot of what we're doing is helping CMOs speak CFO. And I think that that's kind of a really helpful thing where we've heard from a couple of our clients, our, our, work goes into the boardrooms and says, yeah, we're going to have to adjust these because this is not going to work. And I, I think that that's kind of where this is going, which is how do we educate the finance team in the marketing team's world that they know as their reality? Yeah. Um, 
let me ask more more granularly then, you know, if you take a traditional media mix and you say, well, we're we're spending the majority of money, our money on performance and and this is what we can, you know, me- measure the best. Oh, uh, we actually think that we should be investing more on upper funnel TV or this, you know, um, uh, offline channel, what have you. If you might run an incrementality test on that, it, it may be that the marginal incremental ROI or the, you know, incremental ROI is uh, lower because increasing spend in TV, if you only look at it in a one week period or a shorter time frame, you're not going to see that it's actually more impactful. You have to look farther out. So, um, I, when you think about like training the CMO to think like a CFO, how do you think about the patience required to invest in these things that have a longer ter- time horizon? It, that's that's a great question, and and you know I I was talking internally with a couple colleagues about this about the prisoner's dilemma of CMOs, right? And this kind of comes to brand equity versus promotions. You know, CFOs love promotions, right? And I'm I'm talking broad generalizations. If there's any CFOs, I know not all of you, uh, especially if you're the CFO of Apple or or um, Nike, you don't do very many discounts. But there's a cost of overdosing on promotions. You know, my favorite example when I was um, on food beverage, um, Olive Garden is, was one of my clients, and. What I what I categorize their two campaigns in is the soup, salad, and breadsticks, five ninety nine lunch special, or the when you're here, your family. Now, now I'm Italian, and you know, Olive Garden Italian also, but you know, say what you will. So with the five ninety nine, like it lowers the price, it makes a spike in revenue, and the CFO see that it works. You can take that to the bank. The problem is if you run too many promotions, you're now eroding your brand equity. Because why would I pay $11 for the soup, salad, and breadsticks $5.99 that's been drilled into my head for so long? So this is where you have to strike that balance of the long-term brand equity building versus the short-term you know, uh, promotional-driven, revenue-driving kind of, kind of piece. And the prisoner's dilemma is if a competitor brand is lowering their prices, you all of a sudden get less sales. But if you both don't lower your prices, you can maintain that brand equity. If you both lower your prices, now you're competing. And now the, the ceiling of what you can charge from a margin is, is far too low. So this is something that, you know, CMOs and CFOs, I think, have these conversations and they're, they're aware of this. But quantifying it in a way that's useful um, is something that we, we, uh, we definitely support and kind of want to make a little bit more aware of. Yeah, so uh, a little without going too far into it, uh, what we'll do is we'll have promotional groups and flag ind- individual days, and then we'll look at the error in our model, and then say, you know, these days that had the extra relative to what we projected and the investments and pieces there, that extra error is due to the promotion because you flagged that day, and if you run the same promotion several days, you can get an average impact of this promotion. Now, what's really interesting about that is you could see how some promotions, the same promotion might perform differently over different days. So that's already creating a level of insight to advertisers to say, hey, I think that this did better 
you know, because of X, Y, and Z, what do you guys think? And, and these conversations really help. So we group those promotions and then we say, okay, based off of these outcomes and these errors and, and whatnot, um, do we think that we're helping or are we cannibalizing what we're doing? Right. So this is kind of where we have those discussions and we look at average order values. Well, they, they look at average order values, but we call out the specific times and what it did to their aggregate business, because I think a lot of people get, you know, in the details and in their silo where it's like, what happened to our total revenue when this happened? And I, you know, was this promotion impactful? Yes. But for 2% of the business, it was 50% off. So that was 1% of your business. So you have a ceiling of how well this promotion can help your business as opposed to 50% off site wide, very different promotion. So I, I think there's a lot that we learn through the promotional piece that helps educate how that uh, impacts our bottom funnel conversions. Cool. Um, you know, if you, if you take a step back and you look at the kind of paid media uh, landscape more broadly, um, when I when I joined um, my my current company in June 2020, a lot of brands were st- uh, scaling. Um, you know, VC money widely available. Everyone's talking about scale. Then COVID hit, and then it became about CAC reduction. Right at the same time as we're losing more attribution, um, but folks are much much more performance focused at this point. Um, and I think it's also why things like media mix modeling are now more popularized and like in vogue, I would, I would say. However, if you talk about the prisoner's dilemma and you play that out and you see more and more brands, you know, playing this game of like, we need to optimize to performance. We have to reduce price, like these type of things to, to compete. And then you're missing out on brand. It feels like the brands that invest more in the upper funnel in the, when you're here, your family might actually do well. You mentioned uh, that this is like a generalization you see within your client base. The fact that folks are over indexed in performance. What are your thoughts on that? And do you have any like tactical, like specific examples of folks that had gone the other way and tested more into these other areas and saw uh, success from that? Yeah. And, and I would say that's more of like an onboarding, like I was last click, but now I'm reformed kind of scenario. Not all my clients, some of my clients uh, come in with, with you know, a, the a very well optimized in terms of bottom versus upper funnel. And we provide optimizations within that. So I'm going to say not all clients. Uh, but yeah, we've had um, some clients uh, run tests on upper funnel activities uh, specifically like new audiences, new reach driving vehicles that maybe they haven't explored before. And what we found was very surprising was like very non-endemic publishers did really, really well for some clients where they ended up quadruple sp- quadrupling spend and blowing out quota. That was that was one that, that we had there. And, and it was, I wasn't expecting those results, but the test showed that. Then they uh, we plugged it in the model refined our estimates. We then, you know, said you need to spend up by this much. And they're like that much. I'm like, I mean, yeah, but let's, 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 let's work our way up there. Let's not jump immediately there, but they saw it proven out. And they, and now that's like their, their new, their new normal, their new BAU is four times higher than what they had before. So it's those kind of things that surprise me that stick out. And more often than not, it's the undervaluing of upper, upper funnel. 
um, almost across across the board because it's more trackable at the bottom funnel, you know. Yeah, um, and it makes sense too. Like if we play it out again, if all of the competitors are basically on Facebook and Google, and that's where the majority of their spend are, and you test these maybe smaller publishers, you're going to see lower CPMs, which is going to lead to more impressions, which is going to probably lead to more incrementality. I have thoughts on some of the networks like. When you see really low CPMs, what's the quality of the impression, depending on like if it's an app network, certain ones have seen certain programmatic vendors just do some odd things. But I think it's kind of similar with the, with the upper funnel. Um, if you're going in these areas that your competitors are not, you're going to be, you know, finding wins from that. Yeah, what, what I find most interesting when you're doing incrementality, um, you know, testing and you're using a goal-based bid, a, a GBB, of like purchase, um, your pixels with everyone else's pixel as a publisher. So now you're just raising the like cost of that individual person across the same. And the ones that come out most incremental are the ones that got the most dollars thrown at them. You know, the one who happened to get the last impression before the last click, if you're doing that is the one that gets attributed the credit if you're doing last click hundred percent. Right. So there's a impression share that game that gets played over a finite group of people based off the pixel firing for purchase base. And maybe they'll do some lookalikes to expand the audience. And that's unique to a platform, which is great. Um, but what I found was really interesting through some of the tests is the goal-based bids that no other publisher has access to are the ones that tend to be more incremental or like cheaper and incremental, you know, a good deal because they have different surfaces. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you're watching an ad on YouTube, the surface is, you know, your YouTube engagement. If you're, um, and it could be a like, a comment, a share, a subscribe. Those are different signals that show intent of a given category, which then can be used. So if you're, you know, taking action on an ad, lingering longer, having a swipe up function for more information, those kind of actions provide signal to the algorithms that this person is more interested. And those signals are on publisher platform, as opposed to on the, uh, on the, the client side. So because of that, that difference, those differences create larger reach when used in aggregate across all the different platforms. So I always like to look at goal-based bids that have different signal sources or different types of intent to qualify people further um, and move them down funnel. So that's kind of like one thing that I have noticed is an undervaluing of, you know, they are vanity executions, you know, like remember when Facebook was, you know, cost per likes and things like that. Um, I don't, I don't agree on that, but I do think, cause then you end up with just likey people, but I think there are things where if they're expressing a level of intent and targeting the people that do that, it could further qualify them for further down funnel. And I've seen some of those smaller publishers have those unique goal-based bids and have really good performance, which surprised all of us too. So just to play that back to make sure that I'm understanding you properly, what you're saying is to bid to something less obvious or maybe more upper funnel and doing that will lead to more incrementality because you're not fighting the competitors that are all bidding for purchase. Is that kind of what you're saying? When the pixel fires, everyone fights for that guy or that, that gal, right? If you are lingering on an ad, only the publisher knows that, that you lingered on that ad. So those kind of signals to me are unique to publisher. So if you can use 
a, a, a percentage of your spend. Don't put all your spend in bottom funnel. Don't put all your spend in impression-based. I have my impressions, uh, uh, opinions on impression-based. But those middle ones, you know, are providing you, yes, clicky people, yes, likey people, yes, whatever kind of outcome. But it's also a matter of like providing the the algorithm or the surfaces that they have, you know, something that you're going mass reach. So you might as well capture some other unique audiences instead of just having a 15 frequency on purchase, maybe have, you know, a two frequency on a clicky person or a likey person, because if they're engaging with it longer, that's a more important, higher value impression. For sure. And you can still measure the downstream effect of that too. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. That's a, that's one of my big thoughts is just like, there's a difference between, hey, we want to, you know, bid on this specific event versus here's what our business goal is that we're like optimizing towards. And you could bid towards like a click, but you can still say, hey, well, it's getting me a lot of leads. Um, so that's really interesting. Cool. Um, I know we have a couple of minutes left. Uh, I ask kind of all my podcast guests this, this question. This is the Efficient Spend podcast. Um, in your experience, what is the most efficient spend uh, that you've done in in paid ads, and the most inefficient? Uh, the most efficient spend was probably that mouse click that Katie uh, uploaded. I mean, that was like you know, uh, that was like a, a eleven cent click or something that generated. You know, now is it the click that did that? That's the last. That's the last click attribution uh, speaking. Uh, he probably was already pre qualified for that. Um, but in terms of most efficient spend, um, I would say we're seeing some interesting results that are, are panning out for some B2B um, leveraging um, LinkedIn. I find that to be a pretty interesting because that's like if you're doing something targeting another business, that's kind of center of your bullseye. And I think it's a little underdeveloped in terms of the features, the tracking and all those relative to your Googles and Facebooks, but that's, you know, understood. But the, the, the qualification of the audience and how you could tailor the ads to that, like if you do it on your side and then upload it and target those specific people, I think is really undervalued. So I think that would probably be one of the more efficient spends. My least efficient spend was when Google consumer surveys was coming out. Um, I wanted to settle a bar bet with uh, one of another analyst, uh, Sarah. She uh, she thought that um, Beyonce was a better dancer than Michael Jackson. I disagreed with her highly, so we ran a Google Consumer Survey because we had the credits for it to run it, um, and it came back. I think it was like ninety ten, uh, but the the Google Consumer Survey people were like, uh, you're wasting our money. And I'm like, no, I'm going to use it in pitches. I'm going to, you know. So when we went down to Frito-Lay, um, I was explaining the product being like, oh, see, more women in Houston think uh, Beyonce is a, is a better dancer than Michael Jackson. And they ended up signing up for a contract. So I got a pass on that one. But that was definitely my least efficient spend that I had, uh, which was publisher side Google Consumer Surveys. And Sarah still owes me two Michael Jackson karaoke songs for losing, and she hasn't paid up yet. Sarah, get on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you gotta love added value. I I love a good added value. Um, anytime, like any other reps, TikTok, Facebook, whatever, they're like, "Hey, we have this thing, and we'll give you money for it." I'm like, I'm listening. Um, yep. So <laughs> cool. Uh, thank you so much, uh, John. And finally, where can people find you? Uh, find me on LinkedIn, uh, Jonathan Lorenzini, John Lorenzini. I have a very Googleable name, 
So uh, you can pretty much find me anywhere. And tomorrow I host uh, Beers and Data. It's, well, this is going to come out a month later, but the first Tuesdays of every month in Manhattan, I have a meetup group that has around 15,000 members. Um, it's called uh, Advertising and Marketing Analysts. Uh, I've been doing it for like eight years now, and it's grown to you know, uh, quite a bit. So Beers and Data, first Tuesday of the month from six to nine, generally at Mustang Harry's. Uh, otherwise online, you can reach me, just Google my name. Cool. Thank you so much, John. Awesome. Thank you very much. Appreciate the the time and uh, the conversation.